0: Thanks very much. Thank you. Um, well, after that, after that multimedia extravaganza, it's a bit of a no-frills uh, talk from me. Although I think it's what, what I've got to say today follows on quite nicely from that from that clip, uh, because that that film was really about the transition uh, between the interwar period of mass unemployment to the period of full employment and the period of the Beveridge Report that happened during the Second World War. And what I want to talk about today is is why it was that the Beveridge Report was so influential and struck such a chord in British public opinion uh, during the Second World War. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever actually seen the Beveridge Report, uh, but you got a sense from one of Michael's slides there, it's quite an unprepossessing document. Its full title uh, was the uh, or its official title, rather, was the Report of the Interdepartmental Committee uh, of so- on Social Insurance and Allied Services. So quite a long and uh, bureaucratic title. It's about 300 pages long, very small type, single-spaced, no compromises in terms of making the presentation accessibility. It's studded with complicated statistical tables. And in short, it doesn't seem like a natural bestseller. Uh, it's more the kind of dry document that is published all the time, a detailed, serious investigation of a public policy issue, destined to enjoy a bit of coverage in the Broad Street Press, uh, and then disappear into the inner workings of Whitehall. But of course, the Beveridge Report had quite a different impact. On its release on the 1st of December 1942, it became a popular sensation. Within a month, it had sold 100,000 copies. Uh, and a special cheap edition had been produced that was circulated among the armed services. Uh, By 1944, over 600,000 copies of the report uh, had been sold. And it was, of course, widely discussed on the radio, in the press, and at all levels of British society. The Beveridge Report had a kind of omnipresence in Britain uh, during the wartime period. There's all sorts of examples of that. One, One example I quite like is Uh, the public opinion research organisation Mass Observation recorded lots of instances of the way in which Beverage Report cut through into the ordinary conversations of uh, members of the public. They had uh, observers who were uh, sitting on buses or sitting in pubs, taking notes of the kind of conversations that people were having during wartime. And One example they had was of a a 35-year-old man they spoke to said about the Beverage Report It's extraordinary the interest people are taking in it. When I went down to the stationery office to buy it, there were queues of people buying it. And I was looking at it on the bus, and the conductor said, I suppose you haven't got a spare copy of that. (laughs) Uh, So this was was there. People were talking about it. It was everywhere. And it was not, not just being talked about among the political elite, but having a kind of resonance among the wider public. Um, So I think that is a very interesting question to ask. Why? Why did it have that kind of resonance? Um, Before I go on to talk about that, I should just say uh, something briefly about the Beveridge Report itself, about what was in the Beveridge Report. Now there's a famous story about the origins of the Beveridge Report, that the the last thing that William Beveridge actually wanted to do was to chair a committee looking into the future of social insurance. What he really wanted to do uh, during the war was direct Policy on the labour market, which was a very important job during in the wartime economy. Uh, now, unfortunately for Beveridge, but perhaps fortunately for everyone else, Ernest Bevin, who was the trade unionist brought in as Minister of Labour in the coalition government, really, really disliked Beveridge. Uh, something that dated back to Beveridge's role as a, as a civil servant in the First World War, when, Be- when <laughs> Bevin was a trade unionist, and essentially Bevin didn't want Beveridge in his department. He didn't want Beveridge cluttering up. Uh, his policy area, so he decided to invent a little sinecure for Beveridge uh, to get him out of the way. So he appointed Beveridge in what seemed like a great bureaucratic please to chair a proposed review of existing social insurance schemes, supposed to be quite a minor bureaucratic tidying up exercise, and that was a job that Beveridge thought would would keep Beveridge busy without allowing him to do much harm. Now it's said that that Beveridge himself actually had tears in his eyes, when he was told that this was the job he was going to have. I, mean, I don't know if that's an apocryphal story, but that's the, the story that people tell, is that Beveridge was close to crying when he was told that he was being sidelined into this, into this role. But he quickly rallied, and uh, Beveridge seized it as an opportunity to produce a visionary document, which was eventually published on the, the 1st of December, 1942, proclaimed itself not to be a kind of minor bureaucratic exercise, but a radical rethink of the foundations of the British state and British welfare services. Now, of course, one of the things I think that came out of what Michael was saying is it's possible to exaggerate in a way how original Beveridge's work was uh, as a matter of social policy. In some ways he was, a, he was a very good synthesizer of plans that had been floated by progressive social reformers like the Webbs for, for generations. Beveridge's most eye Policy recommendations in the in the report were comprehensive unemployment insurance at a subsistence level, state pensions and family allowances that would be funded from general taxation to assist with the costs of raising children. So these had been, in a way, these ideas had been hardy perennials of progressive political thought for decades. But Beveridge was also clever in couching these proposals within a bigger vision, and at the beginning of the report, as as I'm sure you know, one of the things he said was his vision was of a society that would slay the five giants. Want, disease, ignorance, squalor, and idleness. And, And the need to slay those five giants, Beveridge said, implied the need for full employment as a government objective, implied the need to expand educational opportunity, and also to have some form of comprehensive medical service. They weren't actually discussed in the report. Uh, that, that wasn't part of the, what the report was talking about. But by embedding his own particular proposals within this, these broader ob- objectives, Beveridge gave a kind of visionary quality to what might otherwise have seemed a very technical report. So um, what accounts then for the particular popularity, though, of these proposals in this report during the war? Well, I think there's, there's three reasons... Uh, And I'll briefly look at the first two and then talk in a bit more detail about the the third. The first reason is timing. Um, The Beveridge Report came out at the right time in the war... uh, the, uh, in August 1941, the Atlantic Charter that was agreed between Churchill and Roosevelt had publicised a vague idea that the war was tied into securing freedom from want. That was one of the, the ideas that came out of the Atlantic Char- Charter, that ultimately the joint Anglo-American efforts in the war would end up with the world uh, free from want. Uh, so, the idea was in circulation in, pu- in public discourse, but critically, the Beveridge Report was published right after the ba- Battle of El Alamein. And the Battle of El Alamein, as, a, as you may know, was the first piece of bona fide good military news that the British had received uh, since the start of the war. As Churchill said afterwards, uh, we have a new experience. We have victory, a remarkable and definite victory and uh, this is where Churchill in his his famous remarks after that battle added this is not the end, it is not even the beginning of the end but it is perhaps the end of the beginning so because it was the end of the beginning in Churchill's terms it was now possible for the British public to think about a successful end to the war the Beveridge Report therefore crystallised the mood of Britain at that time there was a readiness to think about what the nation was fighting for and what Britain should look look like after the war now, a second important factor uh, was that Beveridge was uh, extremely good at publicity. Uh, he was a very good publicist, and journalists had been carefully briefed into the, run-up of, into the run-up of the release of the report, and Beveridge himself was indefatigable in speaking and writing about it. But perhaps more importantly than, than all of that, the Ministry of Information... Uh, regarded the beverage report as a propaganda opportunity for Britain. The Ministry of Information took the decision to market the report not as the you know, report of the uh, Interdepartmental Committee on Social Insurance, but instead the, the Ministry of Information branded it as the beverage plan uh, and it, they said that the, they wanted to market Beveridge himself as and this is a quote from from one of the documents as the type of social inventor in which britain excels. Uh, so both Beveridge as a personality and his plan was seen as as good fodder for british propaganda during the war. And one of the curiosities of the Beveridge phenomenon in a way is that the ministry of information uh, did so much to publicize it while at the same time the, the cabinet, the coalition government cabinet, were extremely doubtful about the report and about accepting the report in total. And indeed, the wartime coalition received uh, considerable public criticism for its apparent failure to get behind the Beveridge report quickly enough. And perhaps, in a way, that indicates that one of the strengths of the Beveridge report was that while it was entirely Beveridge's own design, his own kind of idiosyncratic take, on, on these issues, it still seemed to carry with it a degree of state authority and state support uh, that guaranteed it greater legitimacy than just any old report would do. So, those are a couple of important factors the, the sort of issue of timing and the issue of publicity that explain why Beveridge Report was so popular. But I think there is a third, more important factor that I just want to say a little bit more about because, in a way, it's sort of more important and revealing one, and that is that Beveridge was. Popular, of course, because public opinion on the issues that Beveridge tackled, on economic and social policy, had been significantly changed by the experience of the war. There had been a significant shift from the prevailing views uh, in the interwar period. In the House of Commons debate on the Beveridge Report, there was a Labour MP, R.C. Morrison, who put put this point this way. This is a quote from the speech that he made in in the House of Commons debate. Uh, this Labour MP said, People have something different in their makeup from what they had before the war. Something has happened to them. They have had bombs of all kinds dropped in them and they have stood up to it month after month. But a change has taken place. They have a kind of spirit which I have never seen before a spirit of determination. Now, in a way, this is quite a familiar view. I'm sure you've heard this kind of idea that. that that there is something happens in Britain this is kind of the spirit of the blitz idea in a way Uh, but it does raise difficult questions about exactly how we should understand that change in wartime public opinion and how exactly the war shifted it so there's always been a kind of influential view that the war radicalised public opinion um, and you know, it seems plausible to think that the shared social experience of uniting against external aggression must have some impact on individuals' political opinions. And there's various aspects of the war effort, which I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with, that have been pressed into service as evidence for this contention. So uh, people often talk about, for example, the experience of German mass bombings of cities, particularly London, as a kind of stark illustration of the fact that all sections of British society were united by their vulnerability to external aggression. familiar view bombs fell on the working class East End of London, as well as on Buckingham Palace. Um, and it's often said that greater social mixing between classes was one result of the German bombing campaign. Uh, all social classes were huddling together in raid shelters, uh, working class children were evacuated from the inner city to middle class homes in the country. And indeed, the evacuation of working class children is often cited as an important factor that generated a greater awareness among middle class opinion of the poverty that scarred working class Britain. Now, while I don't want to uh, reject all of that out of hand, I think we probably should take it with a pinch of salt because it's far from clear that, that these kind of social experiences, evacuation, the experience of bombing, had a kind of straightforward, uniform effect. On public opinion and if we just think about evacuation for a minute, one one thing that some more recent historians of evacuation see is that the evidence suggests that if anything the evacuation of working class children might have helped to polarise class sentiment rather than unify it since uh, essentially uh, working class families and uh, middle and upper class people met and decided they didn't actually like each other very much. But as it might, it's perhaps not unexpected that if you have strangers from a different background moving into your house, all sorts of, kind of social tensions emerge and all sorts of stereotypes emerge about the kind of people that you are. And there is some evidence that that was one of the effects of evacuation. Um, So, uh, you know, there are reasons to be sceptical of that. Another example that historians sometimes mention um, is the the experience of mass mobilisation into the armed services. Um, And again, it's argued that that resulted in significant social contact between classes who would otherwise have lived entirely separate lives from one another, engendering feelings of social unity. And it's also said that the armed forces... Um, in a way exercised a decisive influence on the result of the 1945 election. In one way, that was one of the popular explanations of the 1945 result at one point, that millions of servicemen uh, voted for Labour. Now, there are, I mean, again, I don't want to dismiss it, but there are reasons to be sceptical of some of these claims, um, because in a way, the amount of social mixing in the armed forces can be overstated. It's true, for example, that the army introduced uh, compulsory citizenship education Uh, To counteract uh, a sort of perceived cynicism among the troops. And that civic education, as some people said, may well have been delivered in a way that facilitated a a fairly broad ranging discussion of post war reconstruction plans. But that probably appealed to an articulate minority of the armed forces rather than the masses. Well, a final example that's sometimes given uh, is that. The, the, the world, uh, the war featured what you might think of as a kind of egalitarian ethic of sacrifice and rewards that, that sort of dominated discourse during the war. So, this is the idea that in the face of external aggression, it was widely believed that everyone had to be seen to be doing their bit. And importantly, individuals received strong criticism if they weren't uh, seen to be doing their bit, and in particular if they were accruing unacceptably large financial rewards from the war. This was the idea of equality of sacrifice, which was a slogan that was often expressed informally, but was also sanctioned by the state uh, with the introduction of rationing and price controls and the use of strongly progressive taxation to fund the war effort. So it's often argued then that this kind of perception of the fairness of rewards in a way placed uh, privileged elites on the defensive during the war, Um, since any suggestion that they enjoyed a materially privileged existence while citizens were fighting and dying aroused intense popular indignation. There was a famous incident in 1942 when uh, the former Conservative Prime Minister, Stanley Baldwin, uh, tried to appeal against the requisition of the garden gates of his country home for scrap. This was at the time when all metal was being collected to be used for the war effort to, ba- to build tanks and guns and so on. And Baldwin uh, tried to uh, hang on to the gates to his country home on the g- grounds that they were of particular um, architectural significance. And this, this aroused an enormous Popular uh, indignation, and he was he was subsequently subjected to such criticism that one Conservative MP even asked at a parliamentary question time, "Is the honourable member aware that it is very necessary to leave Lord Baldwin his gates in order to protect him from the just indignation of the mob?" Um, and that, in a way, gives you a kind of flavour of the kind of culture and ethos of, of these wartime debates. Um, so just to kind of pull all that together, one, one important idea that often comes out in these debates is that the impact of the Second World War has a kind of radicalising effect in the sense that it, it alters established expectations and beliefs of social classes and fuses them together into a kind of new perception of social unity and it's that that accounts for things like the enthusiasm for the beverage report as a kind of mythos of sharing and... and um, the quality of sacrifice. Now, as I've already suggested, you know, one one reaction to all of that is to acknowledge that there's certainly something going on there, something important. But it there's, you've got to be careful about kind of oversimplifying what happens during the war. And a lot of recent historians have been a bit critical of some of these arguments that I've just run through because they tend to view the war as a homogeneous social experience, as one that simply created social unity, uh, when in fact there were some quite diverse experiences of, of war, and you might ask, for example, isn't there a kind of more systematic basis on which to base our conclusions about these b- This period. And in fact, there is quite a lot of survey and opinion poll evidence that can draw on to to dig more closely into how public opinion was was shifting during the war. And there have been a number of recent historians who have used this evidence to uh, make a more sceptical argument about the nature of wartime public opinion. And they they say a couple of things about wartime public opinion. the first point they make is when you look at that survey evidence the public didn't in fact know very much about many of the political debates that are supposed to have been preoccupying them. So for example with respect to the beverage report, a lot of people talked about the beverage report but in practice very very few people actually understood the detail of what it was proposing. For example the commitment to universal benefits that was at the heart of the beverage report was very poorly understood by many of the people who, were, um, who thought they were in favour of it. And in general, uh, it's a sort of familiar political science finding in a way, is that survey evidence shows that it was the richer and more educated sections of the population that had the greatest political knowledge. So that's one sceptical point about kind of popular ignorance, if you like. A second sceptical point is um, that it's argued that the public didn't only kind of misunderstand the, the debates, but they were also in some ways actively hostile to all politicians and political elites, So we sometimes think of the war as creating popular enthusiasm for the Labour Party, but it could be argued that in fact what you get is a kind of generalised hostility towards political elites among the public at large, um, and a strong desire on the part of individuals to prioritise the needs of their own family over any broader conception of the public good. So this would be a kind of, you know, sceptical revisionist, this is what historians often like to do, is sort of take a kind of standard, well-accepted view of something and then subject it to a kind of merciless, sceptical revisionist critique, and this, this period has not been immune from that, and there has been this strand of sceptical argument among historians that says that you don't get a kind of sense of social unity or desire for radical change but instead a kind of visceral suspicion of all political elites and a desire for some form of reconstruction that would uh, secure the position of the individual and their immediate family um, which from, from that perspective In a way, that sheds a different light, shed a different light on why beverage was attractive. Because beverage was seen as attractive because it seemed to secure, or seemed to offer a degree of economic security for individuals. So there is that that sceptical view, but I want to just finish by suggesting that we might want to tweak that, that revisionist take a bit or suggest that even that kind of revisionist view is a bit exaggerated in the extent to which it debunks the conventional view, and to try and reconstruct a slightly more plausible conception of what level of popular radicalisation there was during the war and how it connected to the Beveridge Report... And in a way, the question we might want to ask of that sceptical view I reported is whether they might not have, these historians might not have a kind of overly ambitious idea of what might constitute popular radicalisation and politicisation. For example, should we really be that surprised that the public didn't understand the details of the beverage report? Uh, it wasn't necessary really for the public to come policy walks overnight in order to be considered politicised and to understand the broad strokes of what was going on and I think the fact that they' just heard of the beverage report was in itself a very significant social fact, Because as I said, there are so many other reports, official government uh, reports that come out, that are uh, disappeared without trace, without having any kind of resonance in public debate. And I'll just make a couple of quick points about how I think you can kind of defend this idea. So one, one point is just to pay attention to the political economy of the war, Uh, in Britain, and to note that one of the effects of the war was it revitalised and expanded the kind of traditional heavy industries that had always provided uh, the Labour Party with its core support. So the working class communities that had in a way been shattered by mass unemployment during the interwar period were now uh, enjoying full employment and were widely esteemed in public discourse as essential to the war effort. So, uh, in a way, the the wartime economy widened the reach of a kind of working class political culture by drawing in a a much wider uh, range of workers into that culture, but also by signalling that the state itself saw the support of this industrial culture as absolutely indispensable to the future of the nation. So, in a way, from a kind of Conservative statecraft of the interwar period that had stigmatised unionised labour as, as, as sort of troublemakers or uh, the unemployed as, as scroungers, in a way this, this culture now became praised in British political uh, propaganda as the very essence of the British public. And in a way, one of the reasons that that kind of ideas about unemployment insurance were able to fly so easily during the war was that there wasn't a kind of free rider problem relating to scroungers during the war because uh, there was wartime full employment. Everyone had been made virtuous, in a way, by participation in the war effort. And the, the kind of arguments that were heard in the interwar Uh, period about the kind of incentive effects of unemployment insurance and so on just didn't have any traction anymore because it seemed that there was a kind of more durable model of full employment that had been established. So that's one important factor to bear in mind. A second is just that the, the kind of prevailing ethos of the war introduced a kind of suspicion of the elites that had ruled Britain before the war. So it was a kind of populist propaganda that stigmatised the, the previous ruling elites as the guilty men in the, the, the terms of the, the famous pamphlet that was published during the war, the pro-appeasement politicians that had got Britain uh, into, the, into the mess it was in. Now you could read that as a kind of generic anti-political statement. But I think there's also something in the thought that that wartime ethos did represent a shift in view by the electorate that was much more favourable to a kind of left-wing progressive social welfare politics than to a a right-wing one. And I think all of that meant that the Beveridge Report was understood, in the end, as the reward to which the British people were entitled as a result of their wartime sacrifices – And that, in a way, was the kind of fundamental factor that that played such an important part in making the Beveridge Report popular. Now, it also meant this overwhelming public popularity of Beveridge Mort meant that there was essentially no political space for any alternative model of social welfare. Uh, The fact that Beveridge was so overwhelmingly popular meant that all parties, wherever they started from during the war, were ultimately forced to accept the basic principles of the Beveridge Report. So as a result, uh, for better or worse, even today, uh, even after all those years later, British social policy remains shaped at a deep level by the Beveridge Report, and thus uh, in turn by that kind of uniquely intense social atmosphere of Britain during the Second World War. So we we still in a way live with the legacy of those kind of social experiences that I've been talking about today. And I'll stop there. Thanks very much.